This final well, 25 minutes, I think now, uh, is an opportunity uh, for us to reflect on the day, and I'm going to be asking Steve and Anthony to give us their reflections, highlights, and uh, further ponderings, and then uh, we can have some questions from the floor. If you want to ask any of us to reflect on anything specific, that would be fine as well. But um, who wants to go first? Do either of you care or mind? Anthony, go on. You start us off. <laughs> Three, three thoughts, very briefly. I think one is, is that theology still matters, clearly, to a number of us. And that's important because I think one of the things we often find within various expressions of ecclesiology, particularly amongst the historic churches, is a desire to try and find the next quick fix that can arrest our decline. So everyone's looking for the next package or the next um, clever idea, usually from some guru in America who's going to charge us lots of money as a consultant um, to do that. And, I, and, and I've not to say that there are not merits in s some of those approaches, but I think fundamentally whatever happens to, to, to our future as churches, it has to be rooted in our capacity, our God-given capacity, to think deeply and critically around what does it mean to love God and to try and follow and serve God. And that means that academic theology is not the be-all and end-all, but it matters. Particularly in the context where sometimes, well, in our present context where one of the things about popularism is that somehow to be an expert or to be learned is somehow to be dismissed that actually one of the things about, uh, about social media, which is not to say it's entirely bad by any means, is there's some, I think there's a fundamental difference between all of us having an opinion and all of us knowing what we're talking about. And the two things are not the same things. And therefore I think one of the things I want to hold to is that what's been great about today is the, is the attention the people who are presented in their various ways, clearly no one got up one morning and thought, okay, actually, let me just throw together a few ideas and just spin them off. Clearly, people have wrestled with, and I continue to wrestle with, deep, important questions. And I'm always enthused by what Paul Tillich says, who says, there's no such thing as a stupid question, only stupid answers. <laughs> and therefore, what, I, what I've heard today are people asking lots of really intelligent, important, critical questions. And that's the first thing. Secondly, has been the breadth in which those questions have come. And again, I think that is hugely important. I think there's sometimes a temptation across the, across the tradition of scholarly work where we go through different fads and different people end up looking at other people in, in fairly disparaging ways. I remember going to a conference when I was a, uh, a doctoral student and being told that as a practical theologian, I was way down the tent pole. <laughs> right near the bottom, and the really people who matter with historians, the biblical scholars, and the systematicians. Now, all of those things have their merits, but actually I think we need all different types of scholarship. And I think, again, what's been good about today is it's been the breadth in which people have worked, because it all matters. And I think one of the awful things I sometimes hear, and I have had friends who have said it, and maybe sometimes I've thought it in earlier times when I didn't know better, is for someone to tell you about what they're passionate about and then someone responds, yeah, but what's the point of that? 
It all matters because it's a certain kind of hubris that presupposes we know what we will need at some point in the future. And something that looks very niche and almost pointless now may well be one of the key breakthroughs that will help some, will help some person in the future in their research to make a difference. So one of the things I would say to all of you who perhaps might see yourself as younger scholars is that what you do matters because no one knows what the future will hold except for God. Well, it's probably only theology as to what you think about God, mind you, but let's not get to that. Um, but we don't know the future and therefore what we don't know is what resources we will need to help us on that journey. So therefore everything you do matters. No matter how niche it is or how abstract it appears to be, it matters. And then finally, I guess, it's just this ongoing challenge of how then do we relate what's happening here to what happens in church, however church is constructed. I don't have any fancy ideas for that, but I think that is ultimately a challenge because this matters in and of itself, but it matters more because of what we believe about Christian theology and its importantness and its rootedness in the church in order to make a difference. Thank you. Steve. I'm going to read some notes because I'm not as clever as Anthony. Um, um, I was talking to Christine earlier about the journey that for me led us towards these conferences and some other things we've been doing, um, which began with a chance conversation at a conference with a publisher's representative, and I genuinely can't remember whether she was from Cambridge or Oxford or, or Blackwell's, but it was one of those publishers who have been doing a series of big companions or handbooks on this and that, and they just published their handbook or companion to Methodist theology. Um, and she looked at me, having talked about this, and said, of course, we couldn't do one for Baptists because there isn't the scholarship out there. And I got very annoyed and then calmed down and thought, no, actually, she's right. <laughs> there isn't. And as a tradition, we've not been good at generating um, an academic, self-critical self-reflection, um, which doesn't mean we all ought to be thinking about Baptists, but is a suggestion that we all ought to be thinking, um, or at least quite a number of us ought to be thinking. And there have been lots of good stuff since then. Uh, some of you will know the ICOP series, the, the, the International Conferences on Baptist Studies that David Bevington and others have been running, uh, and those have been fantastic. And we've seen some really good work um, published in the last few years. Um, um, you know, you just look at Duke and um, Willie James Jennings, someone mentioned earlier, um, Christian Imagination, absolutely fantastic book. Um, Curtis Freeman's Contesting Catholicity, um, I think the most insightful account of what it is to be Baptist um, for, for many a year. Um, but what's our piece here in the UK? And I think one of the things that Andy and Simon and, and others have been involved in the conversation down the years have talked about is very, very few of us have the luxury of uh, an academic job. Um, and so one of the questions we're asking is, how do we promote and support and celebrate and share serious academic reflection um, 
in a community where most of the people engaged in it or able to benefit from it and access it um, are serving ministers in churches. Uh, and, and this has been a part of trying to do that. And I hope it's a useful part of trying to do that. Now, I've written various things and will write more um, trying to say that that's not just something to, that's something to celebrate as well as something to try to manage, that actually that the context of the local church is one that, that should be generative theology. And theology that hovers 30,000 feet above the local churches is just bad theology. And I say that as a systematician and a historian, not as a practical theologian. <laughs> but I say it as a Baptist. <laughs> but, uh, um, I, I, yeah, but, but, but nonetheless, working in that context presents particular challenges that we need to acknowledge and think about how we find our ways through and around. Um, having said that, a, a day like this provides us with an interesting snapshot of what Baptists in the UK are thinking about and the ways in which we're thinking about them. And, and let me just try a couple of pulling togethers of one of the things we've seen uh, methodologically and materially and one of the things that we haven't talked about. Um, because that's also quite interesting. And, and the first, I, I mean, I chaired up here, so heard the papers that on Andy's programme uh, were put up here. I didn't hear any biblical studies today. Um, and I think probably only Christine was doing it downstairs. Um, and that, I mean, last year, Ed and others spoke, um, was it last year? Anyway, Ed spoke. Um, and uh, that, you know, I don't want to make too much of that. But I'm very conscious that I've been involved in conversations in at least three denominations um, about the pressures on training um, of ministers and how the biblical languages easily get squeezed out. And that does concern me. Um, I think there's something, if, if we haven't got some of us who are competent to engage in high-level biblical studies, to, to teach the biblical languages to others in our community, then our community is deeply impoverished. Um, and um, we're not there, we're not there at all. Um, our colleges have maintained a tradition of biblical languages that's stronger than several other traditions around the place. But um, I just, it's, it seemed like a straw in the wind listening today. Um, secondly, more than half, I think, of the papers I listened to had some sort of ethnography going on. Um, and um, I think that's A, interesting, and B, I suspect reflective of who we are as Baptists, because we really do believe in local communities. Uh, and you know, ethnography is all about saying that particular local community matters and is, is generative of real insight. And so I'm going to go and live there for some weeks, months, years, and understand what's going on there. And that feels to me like an, um, an instinctive practice for, for a Baptist scholar to be interested in or to engage in. So I heard Sean, Ruth, James, Linda, um, Anthony, um, all reflecting in different ways on um, specifically ethnographic studies. And I think that's, that's something to note, to celebrate, to be interested in, to think about how perhaps we create a community um, 
of Baptist ethnographers. <laughs> um, because perhaps we're good at it. Um, then um, another, the last methodological point, um, Ruth in the first paper I heard had a fantastic line that I didn't get, quite get down right, but it was something like, we need to hear people into speech. Um, and that set a tone from, that infused almost everything that I heard of um, an attentiveness to those who might be powerless or marginalised or not heard. Um, so uh, Linda focusing on young people, um, Sean's reflection on, on specifically on girlhood, um, Simon reflecting at the end on how Martin Luther King's sermon here at Bloomsbury became part of the self-narration of that church uh, and what that mattered. Anthony, I know I can't claim you as a Baptist, but, but your own account of the demonization of black bodies. Um, now, I live enough in the world of academic theology to know that the politicization of the discipline has been a huge and hugely welcome um, move over the last two, three decades. And so maybe we don't reflect anything more than this is where we're at um, as a discipline, in which case let's celebrate the fact we re reflect that because it is very, very important. But I do wonder if we'd had an equivalent gathering of Methodist or Presbyterian theologians, whether there would have been quite the same willingness to focus on some of those questions of hearing the voices of the excluded and the powerless. I've heard several people reference um, the priesthood of all believers, the sense that the gathered Baptist community must have a place for every voice to be heard. And so maybe this is a theme that is ours and that should be ours. Um, So three methodological points, um, two points of content, so um, material points that came up more than once in what I heard. Um, Christendom, I had several people refer to Christendom and I kept wanting to unpick it. I was being good chair and so not letting others ask questions and not getting involved myself. But, because um, you see, if I talk to my Anglican friends, they know about Christendom. It, it was when the church was in charge and everything was good. Um, and depending on the century you're in, um, you could either burn or imprison um, or at least exclude from the better jobs those pesky Baptists and um, others down the road. If I talk to my more Anabaptist friends, they know about Christendom. It was a disaster. There was nothing Christian about it at all. It was an evisceration of the gospel so that something that had the name of church but none of the reality was co-opted by the power of the state. When we say Christendom, what do we mean? The one, the other, something much more nuanced in between. Anthony said something that I, I'd not heard or thought about before. Um, but that as soon as he said it, I thought, yes, yes, that's exactly right, that, that Christendom was in part, at least, an enthronement of whiteness. Um, if we are defining ourselves as living in a post-Christendom society, which I think we have to, that there's, there's truth in that, then we need to know what Christendom meant before we can understand what living after it means. And there is such a 
a, a breadth and com confusion there that I think there's a task there that's, that's still ours. Um, secondly, I heard lots and lots of focus on ecclesial practices, often interpreted ethnographically. Um, I do practical theology if I could pronounce the words. Um, but, uh, um, uh, Ruth, James, Linda, Mark, quoting John Colwell, what happens in church shapes life in the world. Um, but that was also problematized several times during the day. Um, Joshua challenged us to contrast God's activity in the world with Christian activity in the church. Uh, Ruth commented about the, the rare but, but wanted prophetic voices. And so the practices that were being lived out were being lived out in, in a safe and inauthentic, perhaps, way. Um, and then we had um, two or three people invoking um, Willie James Jennings and others, um, criticizing the, the kind of sacramental optimism of Havas. Uh, the best I ever heard was, was just down the road at King's once listening to Nick Healy, the Catholic theologian, um, who said in response to a question after giving a paper, he lives in New York, or did back then, I don't know if he's still there, um, someone asked him about these kind of woke Christian practices changed lives. He says, there's people in my parish who have taken mass every day for the last 25 years, and they are still complete. Um, <laughs> um, now, of course, we didn't do the control experiment. You don't know just how much more complete they would have been <laughs> had they not taken mass every day for the past 25 years. Um, they are from New York, after all. <laughs> but, uh, um, but, um, but, but that sort of... The, 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 the practices of the church do not seem to successfully shape us. Uh, and Mark was talking about how the practices of the world can be far more effective at shaping us and indeed can colonize and, and, and redefine our claimed identities. So, you know, Curtis is Freeman's comments on freedom of conscience or, or Fidis and Bosch on covenant, how, how these things have been co-opted by a, a capitalist norm to mean something very different from what they once did. Um, so what do we do with this? It's problematic for us, because as Baptists, more than almost any other tradition I can think of, we're defined by ecclesial practices. You know, if I talk to my Presbyterian colleagues in Scotland, well, there's a practice of church government there, but there are also reformed doctrines of salvation and predestination that are absolutely key to the um, you know, talk to um, Antonist Methodist colleagues, then um, Arminianism, the, the, the doctrine of Christian perfection, are, are quite high up on the list of, of what it means. For us, it's a particular practice of baptism and a particular practice of church meeting. That's what defines us. And so if ecclesial practices are powerless and useless, we might have a problem. Um, so what are we going to do with this? Well, there's an easy way out. Um, I've talked before, for those who have been before in these gatherings, about how what we do as Baptists, one of the reasons we've not generated a big body of academic reflection, it is a kind of mimetic. Uh, we read about what the early church did in the New Testament and then think that what we ought to do should look exactly the same. 
and we don't worry what it means or, or, or what it does. And you know, you can imagine a kind of sectarian Anabaptist where what matters to us is faithfulness, not effectiveness. We go on baptizing people just the way the apostles baptize people because um, that's what it is to be a church. Um, and if baptizing them like that makes no difference to their life, that doesn't matter. I'm not attracted by that, but you know, it's a way of going. Perhaps better is to go back to our ethnographic descriptions of these practices and say, well, actually we're not thinking about them well until we're thinking about them in really thick ways. Baptism is not something you can describe in two lines. It, it, it's an entire um, life of practice um, that... Um, is different in every particular community, probably shares elements, um, but that involves all sorts of things that are going on, not just um, a particular encounter with a body of water. Uh, there's, there's everything that runs up to that, there's the way the community responds to that, there's, there's what flows out of that, there's the, there's the ways in which we're encouraged to reflect on our own baptism, in seeing others baptised or in sermon, there's, there's, there's the rhetorical power of it, you know, we had a a line flying around the Baptist Union of Scotland a few years back that was uh, how can you pretend to be a Baptist church if your baptistry is dry um, which is fantastic rhetorically absolutely stupid practically because you know, our baptistry takes about six hours to dry actually once we've emptied it we're not baptising people four times a day but that whole sort of rhetorical this is who we are once we get to properly thick descriptions maybe we can say that no the problem is not that the practices are powerless, but that we have been too ready to allow them to be eviscerated. There are ways of doing church meeting that neuter the prophetic voices, that deny the truth that everyone matters, whoever they are, wherever they come from. And there are ways of doing church meeting that celebrate those things. And as, as Anthony was saying in his paper, actually the relation to culture, because we are never unrelated to culture, is going to be absolutely decisive with those things. An example I used once in writing, so you might know it. Um, the first Baptist church ever to put ballot papers in the hands of its members was about two miles from here. They did it just as the Great Reform Bill was being passed in the 1830s, which extended the voting franchise in England from the richest 5% of male landowners to the richest 10% of male landowners. And they gave servants and women and girls voting papers. That was powerful. That was prophetic. We, back around Easter time, called a new minister to my church and we gave ourselves voting papers and that was an invitation to engage in a practice we all understand where you put your own self-interest and whether you like the candidate first because we know how to use a ballot paper that's how we've been taught how to use it and so something that once was profoundly countercultural and prophetic and that spoke powerfully to our Baptist beliefs has become something that we need to fight against and so we write on our voting papers, pray before you fill this in. Comment like that's far too weak. Um, 
culture eat strategy for breakfast. <laughs> but, um, um, but, but we, we, we know that this practice is no longer working like that. So what do we do? We find another way of doing church meeting that's prophetic for our times, that looks at the ways that we're, being in, da we're in danger of being eviscerated, that looks at selfish individualism, and says we're not going to do it like that. And it will still involve making sure the voices of the powerless are heard, because that will be a problem in every human culture, even if sometimes those who are powerless get changed. Um, but the cultural trappings that enable us to do that will be different in different contexts. I'm going to be in New Zealand in the summer talking to them about Baptist identity and I'm told that there's a, a Maori practice called the Hui um, that is deeply resonant and that is what they're using to renew their practice of church meeting. I have no idea at all what this will look like. But I'm excited to find out because in things like that, in proper syncretism, we are more faithful to the gospel um, and more faithful to our own tradition than in just carrying on unthinkingly the things that were prophetic when those who came before us introduced them. Thank you both very much for rounding our day off in this way. Um, that has pretty much taken us to our intended time. And Steve, I am in awe that from a few notes cobbled together, you have given such a complete reflection on not just the day, but pretty much everything. So thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I'm glad, I'm glad we have this recorded. <laughs>